Good afternoon. Today is Saturday, April 8th, 2017. Welcome to today's edition of the Voices for Racial Healing podcast on Blog Talk Radio. We are live, and I'm pleased you've decided to join the show. I'm your host, Tishka Smith. I'm excited to be kicking off the month of April with featured guest Charles Sutton. And before I bring him on, I want to invite you to tune in next Saturday, April 15, 2017, at 12 noon Eastern Daylight Time. I'll be talking with featured guest Terry Lyons. Among, um, among other things, Terry is a sought-after speaker throughout the Philadelphia region. She is also a poet and an author of eight books, including her latest, Light of the August Moon. She has a powerful story to share about her craft and how she uses poetry, prose, and American history to weave captivating tales about family, resilience, and joy in the face of social justice. I'll be putting up the episode link soon, so please follow Voices for Racial Healing on Blog Talk Radio to receive the latest updates on upcoming episodes and to access archived episodes. The podcast is also on iTunes. Our website is VoicesForRacialHealing.com. We're on Twitter as HealRacismUSA. You can use the hashtag VoicesForRacialHealing when tweeting us also. You can get information on the podcast on Instagram at RacismIsASickness, which is the art installation and community engagement project that started it all. And consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can learn more about what we're doing, what we're looking for, and sign up today at www.patreon.com forward slash Voices for Racial Healing. Finally, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at I am Tishka Smith, and all of my links to my social media can be found at tishkasmith.com. All right, so let's get started. I'm excited to be joined by Charles Sutton. He's a librarian and aspiring public intellectual. Through his professional and personal work, he is committed to developing human agency and structural change where needed. His interests include early and emergent literacy, critical making, and maker education. Charles is a thinker and a tinkerer. The following quote from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man sums it up best. Quote, Call me, since I have a theory and a concept, a, quote, thinker, tinker, end quote. In 2015, Charles spoke at the TEDx Evansville Forum on the top of maker education, empowering individuals to make a better world, and we'll be talking about that today. If you want, if you have questions, you can call in um, at 516 387 one seven nine six. Okay. Um, we got Charles on the line. Let me bring him on. Good afternoon, Charles. Good afternoon, Tishka. Thank you um, for having me as a guest on your show. Oh, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited um, that we're going to be spending some time together talking about um, your philosophy on maker education, maker empowerment, um, and your experiment, which you talk about in your TEDx um, talk, which I would like to um, play for everyone today. Um, I also put a link 
to the talk on the comments uh, field on the episode page, but I thought it would make sense to play it. It's about seven minutes long, and I wanted people to kind of get a sense of the cadence and the and the rhythm of the voice <laughs> of your voice. I thought it was really, you know, that's part of the the drama of TEDx. You know, it's a performance. Sure. Um, so before we do that, um, why don't you set the stage for us? How did you um, come to decide to speak at TEDx? What motivated you to say, I'm going to do this? Because it's a lot of work. Absolutely. It is a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of preparation. Um, and it's sort of a performance. Uh, but mm-hmm. it was, a, you know, the, the idea of TEDx is a big, big idea, and I wanted to sort of share that idea, at least share the thinking around making um, and being the maker empowerment or maker education, mm-hmm. you know, sort of it was a topic that was sort of hot at the time and sort of still a topic around STEM and STEAM and yes. making. So I just felt like to have a sort of a different, a little bit of a different perspective on making that I wanted to share that we can sort of situate the education around making in our community and looking at our communities as a, as a platform to change. Oh, okay. All right. So when you got the word that you were um, going to be among the speakers, how did that feel? I mean, how did you respond? (laughs) It was exciting. I mean, it was, Mm -hmm. it was an exciting opportunity for Evansville. It was the first TEDx event. Um, And it's a, you know, it's just a way to engage the community. So I was excited to be one of the first um, and be part of that first group of speakers that came through. Um, so that that part of it was good. But then you, you really get into the work and sort of drilling down mm-hmm. your, your, your talk, you know, getting the, you know, the, it's a performance, but it's also you really want to try to, in that time frame, you know, formulate your idea and sort of present mm-hmm. it. So it was okay. good. I'm still involved in the TEDx experience. So I, mm-hmm. I'm i sort of part of the curatorial team last year, and I'll be a, a part of the curatorial team this year. So even my experience now is not so not only just about creating that dialogue in our community, but also encouraging other speakers and getting them ready to present their big ideas as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, you mentioned Evansville, now, just for those who are listening along, Evansville is, a, is like the second, what, the third largest city in Indiana? It's in southern Indiana. Um, and you said that it was, this was its first TEDx event. And as I was watching the video, there were references to Renaissance and, you know, rebuilding and and reinventing itself. And I know from my recent visit that there's a huge effort uh, among many civic leaders um, to reinvent Evansville um, to be more of an economic driver in the region and so on and so forth. So this, I guess I'm assuming that this, this event is situated in a larger strategy to get Evansville on the map. Would that be a correct assessment yes i would i would say that's definitely a correct assessment and then yeah. Yeah, that topic that year around the renaissance um mm-hmm. yeah so it's just one, one strategy to create the dialogue to have people come and talk about their big ideas not only 
for our, our region, but also, mm-hmm. you know, things that sort of can reach beyond our region as well. So a lot of conversations about um, the environment, education last year. So we, we, we try to pick topics that are specific to our region, but that can go across a larger um, area of population or demographic. Okay. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that makes sense that there's a lot of applicability um, of the big ideas that were shared to other regions, um, and that's exciting. And I think that what you're talking about, as we, you know, as we dig in to your talk and kind of deconstruct it a little bit, um, you know, urban gardening and, you know, a lot of people are doing community gardens. You know, this is not, it's not a new concept, but you're kind of situating it in the maker space, which I thought was um, pretty interesting. So I want to play the, I want to play your speech and then we'll come back to um, come back to the conversation real quick before we play it. What should listeners listen for? What are like some of the big points I've written some down, but I want to hear from you. What are some of the big points that they should, what are the big takeaways? Like maybe two or three. Um, I think one of the bigger uh, takeaways I would start with is sort of this inquiry process. Like there's questions. I I use urban gardening or sort of this idea of food, where does our food come from, as a sort of entry point to start asking questions. I think mm-hmm. the second thing is sort of how to apply, you know, situate education. And so maker education cannot could be for children. It could be for people of any age. But so how do we situate them in a way to empower them, sort of think critically about some of these issues that are happening around them, um, you know, so and then get them to sort of reach their full potential. But So not only thinking about them and asking themselves, what can I do and how do we learn about these things and then what can I do about that? And then sort of providing them access to the necessary tools or technologies or information or whatever it is that's going to allow them to sort of create that thing. So to be active participants in sort of designing um, and thinking about their world. So, and okay. then, you know, what can you do with what you know? You know, that's sort of right. the, the, that sort of basic question. Right. Okay, so let's jump right in. I'm going to press play right now. Okay. I grew some stuff. Chris Anderson says we are all makers, born makers, and many of us retain that love in our hobbies and our passions. If you love to cook, you're a kitchen maker, and your stove is your workbench. If you love to plant, you're a garden maker, knitting, sewing, beading, cross-stitching, scrapbooking, all making. The maker movement has given us a new reference point for understanding how knowledge is constructed, how we make sense of the natural and human-created world, and how we organize and empower individuals toward a particular proclivity a tendency to do something regularly. Several years ago, I started an experiment, partially inspired by the many back to the land movements. I wanted to create a socially, economically, and ecologically sustainable way of life on an average sized lot in a city. Secondly, as a homeschool parent, I wanted to teach my children how to think about the world and show them that they can create a meaningful life for themselves. 
was started as a plan to reduce my ecological footprint and model behaviors for my children resulted in a deeper understanding about making and maker education. Before I started this process, I started thinking about food. Food, the seemingly innocuous activity of eating. Where does our food come from? How is it made? What is in our food? What effect does our food choices have on our health, our environment, our society, our economy? When you think about it, our food system is a rather complex process with some adverse environmental consequences. On approximately an eighth of an acre of land, I started tinkering with our food system. Traditional row gardening, raised beds, hugo culture, to name a few. In this process, I learned something. I learned I can grow stuff. Now, that might not seem that significant, but when you make something that you're proud of, it builds confidence. Confidence in your ability to understand concepts and use what you know to create a physical object. It's what Dale Doherty calls a maker mindset, a growth mindset that encourages students to believe that they can learn to do anything. He summarizes it with the question, what can you do with what you know? Because I grew some stuff, I'm motivated to grow more stuff, more aligned with nature, using less energy and resources. Is there a viable alternative to our current food system? How much food can I grow? What effect will it have on my food choices? You see, when you respond to an authentic situation and make something, you're learning, which is a continuous lifelong process that results from acting in situations. That is the essence of maker education. A multi-year research project out of the Harvard Graduate School of Education found that the most striking benefits of maker education is the sense of inspiration that students take away they begin to see themselves as actors in the community, empowered to engage with and shape the design dimensions of their world. Students might acquire a kind of disposition they call maker empowerment. In my house, we have a principle that's been passed down through generations, take what you have, make what you need. My son Joshua, a media maker, wanted a way to attach a camera to himself or his bike so that he can capture live footage while riding. We could have purchased something, but he wanted to make it. His tendency to act in this situation and use his ability to create rather than consume. A fine example of maker empowerment. There's always existed a tension between technology and nature, industry and agriculture, man and machine. Many people have yearned to escape the machine with fantasies of living with less. Malcontented cogs in the machine of life, consuming products, chasing happiness. I too had dreams of escaping the machine. The reality is there's no escape, only reconciliation. Proponents that praise the potential of making say that it will ignite a new system of democratized manufacturing and inspire a shift from a consumer mentality to a producer mentality. To put it another way, the potential exists to reconceptualize the nature of work, promote individual satisfaction through skilled work rather than consumption. As I, Ivan Illich says, seek satisfaction in what we can do for ourselves as opposed to satisfaction in commodities. Ostensibly, making is skilled work, and makers are a passionate community of individuals self-organized around a common purpose with access to tools and technologies. 
Reconciliation, then, really is a matter of design and politics, how we organize our resources and create public spaces, both natural and industrial spaces, that might shift us from an ownership model to an access model, from unsustainable practices and technologies to socio-ecological cohesion. I grew some stuff. But I also created an environment, a green space, a garden, where more stuff can be made, and satisfaction derived through self-guided tinkering, thinking, designing, and making. Maker education has the potential to empower individuals to think critically, enable them to reach their full potential, and encourage them to be active participants in designing and shaping their world. It is a disposition, a mindset, a belief that a better world is possible, and we can make it. What can you do with what you know? Thank you. Okay, that was Charles Sutton. Um, all right, Charles, let's dig into this. Um, you mentioned... Um, the idea of maker education. What, how did you come to become acquainted with the idea, the concept of maker education? Like when was the moment that you said, this is something that I should pursue um, intellectually, conceptually? Do you remember the moment? Um, so it would be sort of in my professional work as a librarian, uh, mm -hmm. we, you know, once we started to really have a lot of access to robotic kit, robotics kits and different types of technologies, we there was also a movement that was going around that were creating maker spaces. So people were creating these maker spaces that were sort of built, you know, they were influenced by sort of individuals in the community that I hinted to in the in the talk that this group of people would create these maker spaces in the community and they would go to it and, and create stuff. So libraries were picking up on this creating maker spaces. Um and so then we were we were starting to get access to these technologies. So then we started to think about without a space, how do we sort of teach these technologies and what what, what sort of pedagogy are we going to use to sort of teach this thing? So that's where we really started to think about um, maker education. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as so you, it, it really started with that access to that first robotics kit that we got. That's fascinating because that's a completely separate, different space than gardening. So how did you like connect the dots from that point <laughs> to this experiment that you conducted in your yard to grow food? Okay, so these these things were running parallel. So I, I so okay. also were, were, were working, I was also working in, in sort of my yard around this idea of trying to create a more sustainable way of life and around this idea of where do we, we get our basic resources, i.e. food from, you know, starting with food. And so I was, I was tinkering with this idea and thinking about, you know, different ways that we, we're growing food, but then sort of the two, the two converge when, when we start to think about the, the, the pedagogy, the maker education part. 
mm-hmm. we can we can sort of teach these these concepts of making around objects. We make things, or we we make robots, or we make like nice cute things, and then sort of leave the it's sort of abstract, and then we sort of try to draw a parallel in other ways. But then I I felt like since I was really dealing with you know the situation where I live, where you know just the place that I live in my community. That's, that could be identified as a food desert or um, mm-hmm. that doesn't have access to fresh foods, and then I'm growing these things. So I am, you know, I was dealing with those questions that way. So I thought, why don't we situate our our uh, maker maker education or maker pedagogy around this idea of um, what uh, what I'm now calling critical making of issue, mm-hmm. issues that are, that deal directly with our communities and, and around us. So Problems the idea, issues. yeah. I mean, in that food desert, you know, for those who don't know what that is, could you explain what a food desert is? Well, just you don't have access to there. – there are places within the community that don't have um, – immediate or direct access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of processed foods. Um, yeah. When you have to travel a, a, a ways or you just really don't have access to those types of um, natural or fresh fruits and vegetables. Foods. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were using critical making as a framework to address a real world issue, which yeah. from what I'm hearing is a departure from more, I don't want to say more traditional. Yes, I do. (laughs) More mainstream (laughs) applications of, you know, making maker, you know, maker empowerment, maker mindsets that, you know, let's tinker with some robots and technologies in a lab and sort of a more um, controlled environment. Um, You know, I read stuff about 3D printers and, you know, all Mm -hmm. kinds of tools and technologies that, allow you to create things that may not may or may not have real world applicability. You were taking that to, you know, to really just look at a real pressing need in the community. You know, how do we how do we grow food? How do we create spaces that can be sustainable um and reduce the impact that a food desert has on our community. Um, and I think that's powerful. And I and, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to try to get you on the podcast was because, you know, I'm looking at what are people doing to address real world concerns that are, you know, possibly maybe impacted by social racial injustice? Like, how can we go beyond that and heal communities? And I thought that your approach definitely um, got to the heart of that. Like eating is just such a <laughs> it's such an important thing. Like if you're not eating healthy, it's hard to fight racial social injustice. So, <laughs> so what Absolutely. what what were you finding as you were engaged in this exper- experiment? What were you what were you learning? What were you finding out about how this process? Um, worked and and how it could lead to learning more about solving this issue. So I think I want to first say so another part of that connection was that so when we 
when we begin to sort of situate our learning around things that people are dealing with, I think that sort of an educational approach that says, I'm going to start from where you are. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we're, there's a lot of issues. I mean, we talk about food desert. There's a lot of issues around food, free and reduced lunch. You know, what, mm-hmm. we're trying to provide a certain demographic of youth with healthy foods that don't have resources to purchase them. So, right. you know, again, it begs the question, where are you getting your food? Where does my food come from? Mm-hmm. So what what are some of the things that I'm learning? So I, I, intentionally chose to create a front yard edible garden. So as one of my strategies in sort of mm-hmm. this this lot in the in the city. And what it what I was you know, I just wanted to see what happens. Will I create community around this? You know, I have kids on my block, kids that fall in that same sort of free and reduced lunch. Um, you know, I a little, you know, just so I just have different types of children and professionals to people that are on um, assistant, so on my mm-hmm. on my block. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to see what happened. So then when I would produce these foods, would, would it sort of create a community around it? Would people come around? Would they ask for it? Would I distribute it? Distribute it? I didn't know how much I would grow, how much I would have, how much I would use, how much I would have left over. So one of the things that I learned that I thought was interesting was that some of the kids who, you know, I was, I, I was harvesting tomatoes or greens or something, you know, I would just try to share, like, particularly tomatoes, something that they could eat right off the vine, and you wash it and sort of you can eat it. Right. Um, that they, they did not realize or they just, they never seen it. They never seen or tasted a cherry tomato. And I, I found wow. that to be very interesting. So not that they just didn't you know, experienced that. But my next question was, did did you know that this is where it came from? You know, this is how we, we arrive at this, or do you just go to the grocery store and pick up these things or not? Um, so that I found that to be sort of one of the, the very interesting things that I was discovering. And then mm-hmm. I think you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, there's a lot of community gardens and there's a lot of approaches to sort of people growing food in, in urban centers. So I also would intentionally try to different methods of growing, mm-hmm. which I sort of highlighted on try to traditional row gardening and raised beds, this more permaculture idea of hugel cultures. So just, you know, straw bale gardening. It's just different approaches because I was also looking at what, what would potentially be scalable because we know without a community, community gardens sort of suffer. And we, even around here, we were finding that people are start start to get engaged, but then they lose sort of interest as the the time and work goes on. So how can we make this a more viable option, um, or what might we do to sort of create this sort of local food economy? What will it take? So these are some mm-hmm. of the questions and things that I was sort of moving towards, just trying different methods. You know, this is like I'm really just amazed at how when you go through the process of asking questions, framing questions, and then doing something in response to those questions, you come up with answers and you then develop new questions and you, you tinker, like you said, you tinker with the approaches, with the methodologies, and then you 
It's an iterative process. Do you think that's a part of what a maker mindset is? You talked about that in your in your talk. What a you know maker mindset. So I want to dig into that a little bit. What's so what's a maker mindset? What are some of the key okay. you know aspects of of a maker mindset? Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, from a maker education perspective, if you could just sort of give them just something, anybody, just something to work with, food, you know, then you start to try to understand what it is. So, okay, what is food? Where does food come from? And then you you gather some information. So this is sort of this basic, this basic thing. And then so you, you figure out, okay, you know, certain people don't have access or, um, I have to get it from we're we're there's a lot of other issues that we we sort of find in this idea of where our food comes from you know we're creating this and these how is it being grown and what effects is it having on the environment is it being shipped and why why do I choose to eat these foods over those foods and this, when I live in this region so all of these things you sort of start to begin to sort of think about and ask and then you ask yourself what can I do about it based on this information oh, maybe I can sort of start to make something or design something different. So then you start that process of designing it, and then you start. For me, I like to start from what I have, maybe start from what I have access to, to try to inform what I need to do next. And then that's, to me, is sort of that, that's where that sort of iterative process then. You start to learn again. So kind of like a a learn, think, do, sort of kind of learn, yeah. think, act kind of model and it's sort of cyclical, so you just kind of keep going, going back and forth mm-hmm. uh, with that. You know, it's just sort of cyclical, and then you just sort of move towards what it is that you you want to achieve or see. But it allows the to me the beauty. It allows yourself to sort of adjust and pivot as you need to, mm-hmm. as you learn new, new and different things. Right, um, and I, and also kind of talk about it from a student perspective or even from an individual's perspective, I think you start to get a little bit of confidence when you when you engage in that process. You're like, look, oh, look what I did. Look what I made. Look what I created. Look what I designed. Mm-hmm. And it sort of, it almost sort of empowers you to kind of do it again. Like, oh, what if I did that, what else can I do? Right. Yeah. So you begin to think that this process of learning acting, doing, reflecting cyclically, this process can be applied to any question that I have about my world. And it's a powerful, it's a powerful mindset. And that's, I I just wanted to kind of lay that out there because what I, what I want to explore with you, Charles, is how did our communities move away from, from this? Because when we talked before, you know, we came to the conclusion jointly, this is nothing new. But no. somehow we as a community have moved away from this mindset. And I'm, and I'm not saying that mainstream we haven't, because I think that the rise of consumerism becoming more grounded digitally, you know, we've moved away from it as a society and, and our community is just microcosms of larger society. How do we get our young people to, you know, to think like this, to have this mindset? I think that's the question. I mean, you, you know, I don't, 
I don't have the answer, but I think the answer is in when we start to situate them into the the things that say, this is what I'm dealing with. These these are the issues in my community that don't really have a a solution, you mm-hmm. know, or the solutions aren't working. You you know, that to me is like the start point. Like, this is not working. So mm-hmm. we... You know, so I don't I don't know how we got changed, but we when we didn't when something wasn't working for us or we wanted to sort of in, improve our condition, we had to do it. There was no there was no no other sort of entity organization that was doing it for us. We had to say, I want to improve my condition, and mm-hmm. so we we figured out what tools that we have available. So. I like, and, and maybe I got to this sort of conclusion because of some of the things that I've been interested in studying or thinking about, you know, the black press, for example. Mm-hmm. The black mm-hmm. press largely started from access to printing presses and machines, the printing machines that were in churches and in other places. They used what they had because no one was telling their story, no, or the, the the message was skewed to a particular viewpoint. So they, some people decided to say, "Hey, we need to tell our own story. How can we do it? We will use this method because it's available and we have access to it today." And then they did it, and it became a way for us to communicate and dialogue about our issues. Prior to that, we used what we had. We had a soapbox, our voice and a street corner. So space, that was an interesting thing to me. So when I look about look at my house, I cho- we have to live somewhere. I choose to live here. What do I have available? I have this green space. This is the only green space that I have. So how can I use this to produce what I need to be healthy, successful, um, and provide for my needs? Those, mm-hmm. those are the questions. Right. And so you, we got to ask ourselves, where do we get these things? And then, is this working for me? Mm-hmm. That, to me, I think is the, the difference. And that's why I like maker education. So it's not new. It just gave us a new, a new way to think about these things. Right. That, that's, that's what I liked about it. I like making, you know, when we come up with this idea of making or um, the maker movement, it just really gave us a, 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 a new way to think about how, how do I construct new knowledge and new, new information, like with, with what I have. Uh, and, and make sense of the world. So I just situated in, in what's happening in my environment, which arguably some some education pedagogies would suggest that we should start where the children are and right. then sort of build build out from there. So with that said, the the rise of consumerism, you know, promoted the idea that what you have isn't good enough. And that in order to, you know, to be thought of as good enough, you need to go out and buy this or spend your money here or spend your money there, wear this label, own this phone. You know what I mean? And I feel like. Or I have the answer for you. That too. I I decide what's good for you. But yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. But this, but this like runs counter to that idea um, the consumerist mindset that, you know, not only do I have the answer for you, but if you spend your little money, <laughs> you'll have markers of, you know, of success, of power, of influence. Um, 
but maker maker education takes you back to like you said what you have and what you know but how do you get young people to think to rethink the idea that what they already have is good enough that they don't have to go out and spend like if they get a part-time job at the McDonald's that that money that they get needs to go be spent on something that probably will like die or become obsolete in a couple of years. You know what I mean? So how do you break that consumerist mindset to get young well, people set up to think about things in different ways? I, to me, I think there's two, two approaches. And again, these are, these are the things that I would sort of work towards. Um, one, I think it's the things like one that you're doing. Mm-hmm. We have to counter the messages that exist. And, and so we can do that, arguably, in maker education. We could do that in the schools. We could say, I'm going to give you a different viewpoint. Um, it's what you're doing here with this type of podcast or um, this show mm-hmm. is to give a different sort of viewpoint about how to, how to look at what you're doing. Like or what's happening or how, how things are affecting. We get the messages. We get the advertisements. They are designed in a way to make us act in a particular way. We know that. But right. to me, I think that we have to try to counter some of those messages. That's why we have alternative media. We have other forms of, of information sort of sharing, um, and that, that helps to sort of balance that out. I think the, the next thing to me is, really just having a fundamental question of is this, does this work for me? Like, does mm-hmm. this work for me? You talk about I have to spend my money. How do I have to get my money? So I, may, I have yeah. to make a decision to, to earn money to buy everything that I need. So I have to ask myself, does this work for me? Does it work for everybody? Like, mm-hmm. now let's think about how, the, how this works for everybody on a global stage. Where What's happening to jobs? What's happening how do I create jobs or how do I create this system? Um, so let's question, let's talk about our economics. Mm-hmm. So when, when we start to think about these things, then, you know, through this, if, does it work for you? Maybe, maybe not. So maybe entrepreneurship works for you or maybe another form works for you. Maybe, maybe working. So I'm sure there's going to be jobs. There's going to be things to do in here. Uh, maybe that works for you, but but there's also this piece that how am I how am I um, deriving satisfaction from what I do, mm-hmm. and I think that is also a, a fundamental question. Is it I get satisfaction from acquiring things like oh I got this latest thing a car a house a, you know and then it's the next thing oh I got a new pair of a new outfit a new is this really how I'm deriving satisfaction or is it, am I deriving satisfaction in things that I do, the things that I create, my participation in my sort of civic sort of engagement, like mm-hmm. these types of things. So to me, it's for students and just for individuals in general, it's really sort of having those sort of questions and then getting them to think about that and also participate in different ways so that they understand that this is really more meaningful than, you know, acquiring wealth or acquiring, you know, wealth as defined by money or things, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's where we start to have that conversation. And it's not, for me, it's not to say one 
is better than the other. It's just the dialogue of saying how is this affecting not only you, but how the community and then largely the world, you know, mm-hmm. in these processes. So, again, just using food as an example, we, we start locally, and if we move out to how this food is affecting global, globally, we're producing so much food, but some people are going hungry. I mean, this is, yeah. this is what we're up against. So we have to yeah. really question this food system, so mm-hmm. this, this understanding those systems. And that's why I talked in the bio, you talked about looking at, Highlighting the structure, like what mm-hmm. the, the structural issues, and so let's let's talk about the structure. Yeah. And I, as I'm sitting here thinking about what you're saying, like one of the one of the the outputs of this process of this mindset of um, this framework is how we talk about these issues to one another. That being an important output not just, you know, the end result of the thing that you produce or a tomato that gets picked off of a vine or, you know, a cucumber or, you know, a a bag of greens that goes to someone. It's what's equally as important or even more so are the bonds that become strengthened in the community and having more people on board to say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to really just think about these things differently and we're going to do it together. And for every issue that we think needs to be addressed, we're going to use this framework to address it. And we're going to think about it. We're going to learn about it. We're going to create and we're going to reflect some more. And we're going to keep doing it until we get to a point where we're making an impact on this issue and we can see the impact and we can break certain cycles and do it by using what we have and not just physical things that what you know that we have in our like you you mentioned the example of a black press using the copy machines and the mimeograph machines but the idea that we can go to a church and say hey you know <laughs> I'm a member Right. And, right. you know, we're thinking about putting together this little newspaper. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I have this great idea. Um, can we use, you know, can we use your mimeograph machines? We'll buy some paper. We'll buy the ink. Mm-hmm. But it all starts with those relationships. Would you agree with that? I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I really liked how you sort of just sort of reframe that. And that that's exactly Exactly it. I can go back and and sort of, you know, put that against sort of the the idea of maker spaces. That that's that community that came together. That's a smaller mm-hmm. community that decided to say, hey, we're going to use this space. We're going to bring these sort of technologies or equipment into this space, and then we're going to kind of just work together. We're going to work independently and together around creating things or stuff or just sort of mm-hmm. exploring and learning together. So it's, yeah, mm-hmm. everything is sort of socially created. And so, yeah. and that's again, back to what I like about this sort of idea of being makers and this maker movement is that it brings community together. We just sort of come together and say, Hey, let's come together to discuss this issue on this podcast in the, in, in our hope to sort of improve our conditions or sort of heal ourselves, you know, our racial sort of situation. So this, Mm -hmm. again, we're coming together, engaging in this making right now. We're creating new knowledge by just um, doing this podcast right now. Mm -hmm. And so 
this will hopefully lead to other dialogue that we, you know, we, we're creating some, so again, to me, I did talk a little bit about making being sort of this artifact, this thing, this physical option that we create, but it also could be sort of this intellectual sort of, um, you know, this new knowledge could be created in, in different mm-hmm. forms. It also could be a process or an organization. So we create the organizations for us in a community to serve us. Mm-hmm. We, that's an interesting concept that I've, you know, I've been reading about too recently. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we create the churches and the organizations in our community, um, the, the, the journalism, the, you know, the newspapers and that to serve our, our needs. So when they're not functioning or working for us, we have to either create new ones or, or ask them to sort of change to what our needs are today. Does that, I mean, that's, (laughs) I'm laughing because, you know, our institutions are revered. Like you think about the black church, like, and the, and the, the, the notion is always, this is how we always did it. And, you know, sometimes becomes ossified our beliefs and our, our, you know, how we understand our institutions as they're situated in larger ecosystems um, how they need to just stay the same, and evolution is almost looked at as a threat, you know, <laughs> like, well, if we change, and that's not who we are, but it, you know, just from what you said, it's like, we have to do that in order to meet the changing needs of our communities. Um, you know, I did a photo essay at a church in Northwest Philadelphia that had to evolve to meet the needs of this changing community. They recognized that hunger was an issue. And so instead of like looking the other way, they created a really um, impactful feeding program. And Mm -hmm. that enabled them to, you know, to, to address this need, but it also introduced them to folks who had become, you know, estranged from the church in one way or another or suspicious of the church. Um, they created those new social bonds through this program that addressed the real community needs. But sometimes I think that, you know, our institutions aren't that flexible. Like you have to be flexible and willing to, you know, to rethink your own values to say, we need to evolve. We need to, you know, we need to be able to address these needs if we want to stay viable, you know? Um, And, um, that's one of the ways that I think facilitates healing is flexibility, being able to adjust what you talk about in um, this idea of maker mindset. And, you know, one of the outcomes, more confident people, you know, you can't be Mm -hmm. confident if you know that the institutions that you need to go to potentially for help are like, no, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. we don't have, we have this space and we have, you know, we have all these materials and resources, but we're not really interested in addressing that issue. You know, being turned away may, you know, really negatively impact confidence, you know, helping people, young people in particular, build their confidence in, you know, knowing that they can become active participants um, in shaping a better world. So what do you think about that in terms of, our institutions being more flexible, being willing to adapt 
to, you know, changing needs and how they fit yeah, into, the, you know, this ecosystem of a making. Then first um, I would say that it's interesting that these institutions, they get to this, that, that position where they're, they're forcing people to bend to them. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. And then that sort of, I, I, I have to lose a little bit of myself because now I have to either fit a mold that doesn't, that doesn't no longer represents me or doesn't represent my needs, like what I mm-hmm. need. Like I have to, I've to create obstacles or I have to bend to you. So I think that is an interesting point. Uh, but I personally feel like that we really have to start from an understanding that the people we collectively create these institutions to serve our needs. That that has mm-hmm. to be sort of foundational, fundamental. Mm-hmm. Um, in our thinking, because when we think about it that way, then we can say, is this institution continually sort of serving the need? Is it still viable? I mean, does it is it still necessary, or is it keeping up with what sort of what my our needs are today? And I mm-hmm. also want to say, I want to argue that, like, sort of back to this, just and as an example, the black church. You know, it was created. We were we were you know coming out of this sort of situation of captivity. We were um, we were hiding our language in this. We were we were using mm-hmm. it as a way to continue our communication, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, in songs, in in just different different ways. So it yeah. was functioning in, on our behalf. It was functioning to help benefit us when we were trying to learn how to read and learn, learn build literacy skills. The church was was very instrumental in that as well. Mm-hmm. And then again, we talked about sort of the black black press is sort of using some of that, you know, community, you know, building community around our church. So these institutions were very much a part of the development of of, of you know African American. Uh, so yeah, you you have to. I mean, I think it's sort of a, a two way street here. The people, since we created, we have to sort of be part of it shaping it to to our our present need. So in other words, you can't just be like, uh, well, this isn't working for me, so I'm just going to just abandon it and just. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a responsibility on both sides. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 That that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, You know, going back to sustainability. So what did you what did you find out as you were conducting this experiment? What were you learning about the methods that you employed, that you were testing, kind of the reactions from the community, um, you know, curiosity, um, you know, reactions ranging from curiosity to whatever. Um, sustainability. Like, what are you planning to do with this now going into the future? Yeah, okay. So I want, I'm going to first say that one of the things that I learned, it's a lot of work. Like, it is a <laughs> lot of work. So, and it was largely, you know, me doing this process, and particularly the, the, the beginning parts of it, creating the beds or whatever method. Um, planting, sort of growing, and then sort of my family would jump in a little bit mm-hmm. um, for for harvesting. I just want to say it's a it's a very labor intensive process. Mm-hmm. 
Um, second, so when we talk about to scale and trying to sustain something like this, to me that is like I would start with that. This is not that that idea. Oh, let's just start a garden and we can grow our own food. Okay, right. just let's just understand that it's it's a lot of work. Now there's different methods, and that's why why I like testing this, these different methods because now we're starting to hear a little bit more about like aquaponics um, as being a sort of a viable method that that doesn't have a lot of pull from other resources like watering or, um, you know, you don't even really need soil. And it's sort of, is this really like closed loop system that, that really works well? Um, watering has become an issue. How, how, how much water do we have? How much water waste? So again, either part mm-hmm. of my process is something that I hadn't talked about um, in the talk, but we sort of collect water, our gray water in the house to sort of help to, keep our plants sort of watered outside. So again, mm-hmm. if if I were sort of to, to kind of keep this test going, I would really want to try to explore a little more of a, a rainwater, gray water capture system that I would just sort of drip feed, drip irrigate sort of the bed that I have currently set up. And mm-hmm. I and I did do another test recent last year where I created two, you know, my just sort of air quote raised beds but I created a trench the middle, and the idea there is to sort of you you, you drain the middle um, with water. You sort of put a lot of water in the middle, and it sort of seeps mm-hmm. into the beds to to the to the opposite side. So again, for me, it was exploring different methods that allow this thing to be somewhat less labor intensive, but that someone could kind of put in. And if you kind of watch it, weed it, do some things then we can get to this idea of towards a sort of a, a local food economy, or at least from a community standpoint, grow some foods um, to supplement. And that mm-hmm. that sort of would be my next thing. But I, I do want to say I don't – it's been a, it's a lot of work, and my things are shifting. I'm sort of moving into different directions around this idea of making, but – think my next set of questions are what foods will allow us to make things like say maybe salsa or salads or something mm-hmm. that can really give us something sustainable that we can eat and that we can grow in abundance for like on a community level. And again, mm-hmm. we work towards what a food economy might look like. And then just, mm-hmm. you know, we can always throw in seasonal things, but I mean, for more longer term, if we if we we employ aquaponics, um, I think we can do that. So another, and I just do want to point this out. So other people have sort of gravitated after the TED talk. Um, other people moving in the community have bought up some lots and wanted to do this idea of um, um, urban farming or gardening. Mm-hmm. So I think what I've learned could help inform sort of another direction towards how this thing could be sustained in a way. Now, I know other communities have done some some great work and have been very successful in it. But, Mm -hmm. again, I just think that I can, from what I learned, I think that I could bring an approach to say, could do, let's talk about how how we do it a different way or this way. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that was interesting to me. When we talked the other night about today, 
you talked uh-huh. about non-commercial solutions and um, preferring those because, you know, the question always comes up, well, how do you monetize this? You know, how do you, you know, the end result shouldn't always be about making money because then that, <laughs> that means that you're creating an artificial need perhaps. And, um, you know, just from what I've heard you talk about this, question about where our food comes from is not necessarily about how we get people to pay for food. People are already paying for food, but in an environment where there's a lack of fresh food, um, being able to say, here's a garden, take what you need, um, you know, use what you, you know, have to create this sort of space, um, monetizing may not always be the, you know, the, 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 one of the goals. It shouldn't be one of the goals. Right. Um, so, but you still need to get things done. You still need water. You still need soil. You, you need seeds, you need labor. Um, how do you engage a community around cost sharing? What about yeah. that or yeah. So back to your, you know, back to the question of sustainability. You know, Mm -hmm. we tend to think that that's the only way to sustain something. How do we sort of create the the model of I need to create a product out of this to sell, Mm -hmm. to go back in, to do it, whether it's not like just sort of even, you know, whether it's even or not, or you're trying to make a profit. Um, I, you know, I am – I just want to challenge us to think differently about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, first is, you know, we're talking about need. We started talking about food deserts. That's the issue, is getting right. these, these foods to people. So, yeah, right. okay, okay. We do have to be realistic about there is a cost to it. But, mm-hmm. then, again, things that I'm finding, you begin to minimize, well, a couple of things, we, you begin to minimize the cost because it's, it is a closed loop. I, I grow a tomato, a particular type of tomato. I have seeds. What I, if I could get those seeds and then I have a way to start those seeds again, I sort of mm-hmm. have this system. And then there's other ways seeds start. So um, we begin to minimize. I use gray water, rain water, if we could create. This is how mm-hmm. we design our community. So we start to minimize the cost. When we go into, this is my belief, when we start to go into this thing, thinking about it in that way, Mm -hmm. we begin to, it sort of directs how we want to, oh, okay, we have to think about how to create or make money to do this instead of how do we create, how do we just sort of provide the foods for the people who need the food? That that to me is like the first question and the most, most beneficial to it. Yes, there's a cost. There's labor cost. There's, there's that. But I I don't necessarily have to put a dollar amount on my labor. Somebody just has to do the labor. What do they get in return mm-hmm. for that, the labor that they put in it? But we also mm-hmm. have an issue that people don't don't, don't have jobs and they're, they're not doing anything. Like, so yeah. is it because, like, okay, do – to do something, do I have to pay you a wage to do something, or do you mm-hmm. can, can I give you another community benefit from from doing this work, particularly mm-hmm. work you may enjoy doing? You know, so I just want to challenge us to say there might be other alternatives. So there are some other cooperatives are another way to look at that. We don't 
talk about cooperatives that that often, but mm-hmm. these communal ways of of living that we could probably move us towards a better way and maybe solve some of our other issues that that sort of affect our the particular communities as well. So I am I want to be realistic about there's cost associated to it, but I also right. want to start to question who's putting the, that value on those things that we, we have to buy, like, or mm-hmm. we have to acquire. Like, right. that's that's another question that I, that I would have. But I, I believe if we invested and created and built greenhouses maybe um, and sort of figured out how to sort of save and share our seeds mm-hmm. um, and, and found a way, even like, like um, maybe if we tried straw bale, you know, we could, you know, we could grow, we can grow straw. And then, you know, I, I know people think that this is sort of idealistic, but in this scale, it, it can kind of work. And But yeah. we tend to just sort of always want to think about the way of, of, I have to, I have to exchange dollars or currency for this to do that. Right. Um, and I, and that's, that's my idea of sustainability. And all okay. I'm asking is that we challenge that notion. Mm-hmm. Because it may be that, but it may be other things as well. It may be other, um, other ways that we can um, create value and ensure that people, um, people, their labor, their resources are shown value, um, not exploited. That's what I'm hearing. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like we have a someone called in. So I'm going to bring them on and see what's happening here. Hold on. Okay. Hello, um, you're on with Voices for Racial Healing and guest Charles Sutton. Are you there? Erico, one, one, I dropped it. Okay, never mind. Um, anyway. So what I wanted to ask is a follow-up question to that. How does that, how does that, you know, the idea of, you know, community cost-sharing, um, collaborate, collaborating, how does that rub up against what we're being told and the messages that are being pushed by the Trump administration? Like, I always want to bring it, <laughs> you know, bring in the Trump administration because that's the reality. We're all living under this administration and, you know, Trump is a, you know, businessman and he fully subscribes to you know, the notions of capitalism, people, you know, carrying their own weight, um, you know, the idea of Obamacare being, you know, a threat to our American values, giving people stuff they don't deserve. Like, how does this, how do, how do your notions and ideas rub up against the realities of living under this regime? Well, you know, I'm I'm gonna first say that I I cannot speak to that, like okay. to to what they're what Trump and those that administration is doing, and I'm gonna tell you tell you why. Okay. Because I I you know, I that's that's why I like this philosophy is because I believe that we could we could think about a better way, and plus there's been other ways. There's other. Mm-hmm other methods like other people have done this for many many years that's other mm-hmm. than capitalism there's, yeah. there's other other methods than cap- capitalism we don't mm-hmm. learn about them we don't talk about them they sort of largely have been sort of just demonized 
in, you know, sort of mainstream, you know, media, press, education for the most part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so let's look at what some other people have done. I And I would also argue that that doesn't work for everybody. And we keep saying that, oh, if, if this happens, then it will it will improve. But largely capitalism hasn't worked for everybody. Right. Uh, that's just, to me, that's a fact. I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. starting from the position that capitalism doesn't work for everybody. Am I saying right. throw capitalism out of the window? I'm not. I'm just saying, like, let's figure out something that's going to help those who it's not working for. Like, mm-hmm. It's not working for everybody, and mm-hmm. I, I would argue that it will it work for everybody. Like, will it, could it could it really work for everybody? And and I'm not just gonna say in our little region, uh, little region, <laughs> this uh, <laughs> our nation, but globally, yeah. like globally, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of other people. Um, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna also argue the implications of capitalism across like the globe, like what what effects is it having on, you know, the environment and everything. Again, I'm not mm-hmm. a I'm not an economist. I'm not I'm not I'm just asking questions. That's right. that's to me. I just feel like it doesn't it hasn't worked it largely hasn't worked for um a lot of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's ever gonna really be enough jobs that pay enough to have a standard of living that people can live like I just don't, particularly around this, I, this profit, this idea of, of generating profit, you know, I mm-hmm. just don't, how can we pay people enough to have a basic standard of living in this model? Like everything you have to buy, like your housing, your transportation, your food, it's, I, that, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Yeah. So yeah. to me, this is largely my experiment. Like how do, other people have done it. The other people right. have been successful around the globe in different eras in other models. So mm-hmm. all I'm asking is that we explore some other other options. And can can they coexist? Yeah, so I agree with some, you. It's 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 like it shouldn't be a zero sum game, right? It shouldn't be right. capitalism or nothing at all. And if you right, try right. to attempt something that is not capitalistic in form and function, and you're somehow seen as being contrary, you're being, you know, you're not, you know, you're being, you end up being labeled. And, you know, going back to the more fundamental idea of asking questions, like I find in our contemporary culture questions, you're seen as contrary. If you ask very provocative questions, you're seeing you can be, you can be labeled an enemy of the state, right? You just like you know you're asking stuff that goes you know squarely against our values, you know. And unfortunately, when we when you suppress the 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 drive to ask questions, to think of ways to make a better world. You can you run the risk of being ostracized almost. It's almost and even if those questions lead to, you know, methods and technologies and processes that can help so many people, right? right. You can be labeled and and ostracized and cast aside and cast out. And you know, young people watch this, and young people always want to be part of something. They want to be accepted. They want to be seen mm-hmm. as 
um, part of the group. They don't want to be seen as like the weirdo. So like going back to that notion, like getting young people and just people in general to ask questions and not feel like by asking the very questions that could save community, that could sustain community, um, it's okay to stand out. It's okay to, you know, to, to look at the world and speak out and, and say, maybe we should be doing this differently. Does that, does that make sense? Like, you know, just the whole process of critical inquiry can get you in a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know, I've that found that out through my work. <laughs> you know, it gets you in trouble because people are so wed to, you know, what they've been told is the way to go and the way that works and the way we've already always done things. And, you know, just by daring to ask questions, you can be branded like an outcast and it can cost you dearly socially, you know, in terms of social capital. But we need this yeah. type of inquiry. We need it because there's, you know, there's no reason why people who are suffering should continue to suffer because they can't enter a system that really isn't designed for all of us to succeed in any way. I, will I mean, add, you're absolutely right. I, and it's an interesting notion that we we hit on this sort of why that to me is why why is that? But I will mm-hmm. add, it is necessary for a democracy to have mm-hmm. people to think critically and ask questions. That that's yes. that's kind of the the ideal, right? That's the yes. ideal. Um, but then sort of to tie it back to the maker movement or maker education it's inherent in sort of that process, right? So, mm-hmm. oh, let's build a robot. Like, what what do we want to build? What does it need to do? You know, so you start to begin to ask those questions, and then you, you design, and then sort of you create, and then you test, and then you, like, did it do it? Iterate. So beauty that we, if we sort of take this approach, um, you, you know, and this is just an approach, if we take this approach, then we automatically sort of, starting to think about and ask questions and sort of think about, uh, and I want to sort of broaden it beyond just did the thing do what you designed it to do, but then what other effects did that did that design have on other sort of systems or functions, um, again, i.e. food, if we design our food system in this way, mm-hmm. what other effects does it have on that, or if I design this technology in this particular way and it creates this waste, what then do I do with that waste? Or you know, so not just did it meet my functional need, but what other impacts does it have? Mm-hmm. I think that then we 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 have to start to accept that there's going to be this more more of a a questioning design. We're all makers, we're all designers, we're all contributors to our our world, our you know, our world, not just those people make it, scientists do this, corporations do that, government does this. No, we are all, you know, we are, we're all part of it. And that, so that's that human all, agency part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we're all makers, then that means we all can ask questions. Yeah. Because yeah. out of the make, you, you know, the to. making only can be initiated by asking questions. You know, you're not just making ask, ask questions of our government. Ask questions. Yeah. I mean, whatever side you're on, just ask questions. Does it function? Is it serve? Is this model? Is this work? Is this function serving the needs of the majority? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's the fundamental question. Like, is it? Yes or no? Yeah. And if not, 
what do we need to do? What and what do we need to do? Yeah. We can we can say it's the administration, but you know, on a simplest simplistic level, we people have voted or said that this is what we want. Like this right. is what we want. Now, again, I'm just saying I'm gonna leave it on a a base level that this is that part that that process that I voted mm-hmm. this person, whatever. But again, yeah. it doesn't matter. Whatever whatever party you sit on, people uh, the majority of people agreed, and and it was it was agreed from another process that this is the person that's going to be represented, uh, right. that's going to represent us. Now the question is, does this process still work? And yeah. then you know, not not just the dialogue. But if the process, again, like what we talked about earlier, if the process is not willing to, to adjust itself to, to meet the, the needs of the majority, then what are we going to do differently? We should yeah. create another system. That's how the system got created in the first place, right? I mean, arguably, yeah. it's how the system got created in the first place. People right. were upset. Yeah. But, but you, I, I wasn't represented. This is what I'm creating. Mm-hmm. And then when we get into the racial parts of that, too, but, you know, it's just to say, like, hey, and, you know, what do we, as a, as a race, what do we decide? Say, hey, we want to try, we will try to function within this system, given whatever situation we, we came through, right, and whatever the laws that were created and, and how it was set up, we want to try to, try to, we want to try to participate in this system. And let us ask ourselves, Let's ask ourselves about that question of progress. Mm-hmm. That that to me is what what I'm what I'm saying. So if it's not working in our favor, or we're not progressing at the rate that some of us feel like we may or may not be progressing at, then what can we do different? Mm-hmm. And I think we have that human agency, or we should develop that to do it. And it has been done in the past. It's what's mm-hmm. got us to where we are today. Yeah, and I think again. So when you mentioned earlier, this is not a new concept. It was just right. another way to say to bring these ideas back around, and sort of again we tie back to the context of mm-hmm. how this country was created, how you know these situations were created within this country, and what people have done to make those changes. For for you know you name it, you name whatever social uh, social group you want to name or economic group, you know whatever, you know, mm-hmm. women, African Africans that that were born in America, you know, other mm-hmm. in, uh, immigrants, you know, whatever, like just, uh, you know, whatever. And you got to ask yourself functionally how that, how they, how they arrived at whatever condition they're in and what they're doing about. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I will argue that we can look at that and say that there was a, a lot of people who, who decided to say, Something, I, something needs to change, and let's start a process of working with, you know, a group of in our community, and then sort of how do we influence whatever organization systems to help move us and, and change our condition. And so I map that to maker education, basically. You know, that mm-hmm. I guess we <laughs> we, yeah. we have the framework. Absolutely, we do have the framework, and. Um, and that it should be, um, I mean, we should be comfortable with people asking questions, engaging in critical inquiry, because like you said, our country was built on that fundamental idea that, you know, 
in getting to the acting, we have to ask ourselves, how do we get here and how can we, how can we move forward and how can we address some of the critical concerns that existed um, before the country was founded? Um, that it was nothing wrong with it then and it shouldn't be anything wrong with it now. Um, but the reality is, you know, asking questions nowadays in this climate can come at great cost. Uh, if you find yourself on the wrong side of the, of the you know, of the conversation. You, you are absolutely right. And I just want to say, we have to ask ourselves why right. that is that is that is almost what get us back to this notion of within you need to sort of think of that, that human agency why the why is that and right. yes historically it's going to say people who ask unpopular questions there were repercussions too absolutely. exactly yeah um, and I think we're going to have it to, we'll see it today we're absolutely seeing it today yeah um, we are you know journalists any, any pick again, pick anything. But to me, the question is why, and that's why. Also, when we talk of education, we have to sort of point to these things and then say, let's ask these questions. <laughs> and I think we we would we would get more sensitized, I guess, to to this idea of asking questions and I can design because I'm I'm empowered now. I'm mm-hmm. empowered not only to ask the questions, but then. What I what can I do with what I learned from from yeah. asking these questions? That, mm-hmm. That's the that's the, the like okay, you know why is this? Why is this? Why why is this? Because maybe somebody wants the, a particular sort of viewpoint, um, ideology, to exist. That maybe maybe that's the case. So okay, what if we we change the ideology? Oh, what is it going to take to you know so so forth. Mm-hmm. So so forth. So that to me, that to me is making that. That to me is we're, we're creating our world. We're designing, making, and cre- creating our, our world. You know, right. and we do that. We yeah. created people created this, <laughs> so we should be able to change it. You know. <laughs> well, it takes like you said, the agency. You know, the human agency. You have to own that. You know, good or bad. Um, you know, I always say. In my work, you know, um, we talk about the government like it's some sort of amorphous thing outside of us. You know, we are the government. We are, you know. (laughs) And so once we recognize that, then it should empower us to be more actively involved. But, you know, for whatever reason, I, I blame a lot of things. But in terms of this conversation, you know, the consumerist mindset, you know, what can I get from this, you know? versus if I put something in, I get something equally out. Um, And I'm not talking about like benefits, like tangible benefits, but in terms of the fundamental value system, you know, if I believe that people shouldn't get stuff and that they're just people who, you know, (laughs) take, 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 Mm -hmm. then you're going to create systems that punish people you know, mm-hmm. for just being, you know, you're going to create systems that pr- disproportionately affect communities in very ad- adverse ways. Um, you know, like you said, you're absolutely right. And 
I think the question that you asked that, that led the show, what can you do with what you know? Like, you need to do something with that. I don't know if that was a question you came up with or if that's a question. Um, of Del Doherty's question. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. But that needs to be, like, drilled into everybody's head. <laughs> <laughs> because it encourages it active participation, you know, and that to me is what healing is all about. Active participation leads to change. And if the change is what we all ask for, what we work toward, then it heals something, inevitably, something. You know, it may not be what everybody wants, but it's a starting point. It's a starting point. Um, it, it is. So, so Charles. I kind of wanted to. Yeah. No, okay, go ahead. No, we have about 10 minutes point. left. Yeah. Okay. Do I have time for one point about, we were talking about, you brought this con- consumerism up, and I did. I kind of went to an extre- uh, one question of a different system, but to me there's another question. When you talked about values and, and that, I thought about, you know, even within this system, you, you have a choice on how to spend that dollar. Um. And then there's there's ways that we could also sort of create power from that spending as, as well. So I mm-hmm. just wanted to kind of so it's, it's, there's there's multiple questions and then there's multiple solutions. Again, when we when we look about think about making, you know, even from a, a robotics kit to cardboard prototyping, you know everybody's going to come up with a little bit of different solution. Let's just engage people in, in what they do. So when you say, what do you do with what you know? Some, I think people are doing stuff, but maybe we, we're doing it based from a position of this is what I know. I know how to go out and buy and, you know, and, and, and do this, but okay, mm-hmm. let me engage you with a different question of let me ask you something different. So that's that sort of let's think critically about, what is this doing? That what are you getting? What are you deriving from that particular act? So I just I'll just leave it there. Well, you made one powerful point when we talked about editing our creative process, editing our um, ability to come up with solutions that kind of fit in, um, which could have you know very challenging implications. And I want to end the podcast talking a little bit about that, this idea of um, as you're making, as you're engaging in critical inquiry, asking questions, tinkering, um, finding your voice almost, I mean, absolutely finding your voice through that process and then, you know, kind of sharing what you learn and what you come up with with the world and finding yourself kind of adjusting your own voice to get a bigger audience or to some other end other than the end of just being able to say, I did this, going through my own process of asking questions. Um, And how, you know, the cost of that, you know, when Mm -hmm. people edit their voices, edit, you know, edit how they create, we end up losing uh, we may get a solution, but is it the best solution from this person at this particular time? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about that the other night. You know, for instance, an artist who 
may have a very unconventional way of, of painting or printmaking, but thinking about, I need to sell some art, I'm going to pull back a little bit <laughs> to make to my, you know, to be commercially viable. Um, yeah. But we may not get the full, you know, the full power of their voice because they're editing to a certain end. And I, I think that that, you know, there's some applicability to making as well. And we talked a little bit about that. I wanted to cover that in the last few minutes that we have left. So again, what I've learned in this process, largely sort of, you know, through this sort of making process is we each, whether we work in teams or individually come up with our own solutions, we are, we, we are sort of encouraging and developing that human agency or that, you know, bring what your gifts, what you have to the table, mm-hmm. you know, whether in a team or individually to solve this issue. Now we are, we're encouraging that. And I think you begin to develop who I develop, who I am, my voice, my creativity, you know, the way I see the world. And then I, I try to put that into whatever I'm doing, solving a problem, creating something new, um, and within a within a community, within a sort of social setting. Now, on the on the outside of that, we talk about diversity. So mm-hmm. we're, in, we're we're creating these or we're developing these skills, talents, gifts, and strengths. But on the outside, it's not you know when we talk about diversity, and someone mentioned it's not just cultural sort of diversity, and I like how he put that. But it's also like recognizing that you're you're a little different than I am, and that's okay. And yeah. I should celebrate that. And I and that to me is a the beauty. Like, okay, oh, I see how you do, do the printmaking. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Yeah. You know, and we can we can encourage that or we can discourage that. And I believe a better society is when we can encouraging that. Now mm-hmm. a, around who you know, being your best kind of stuff, not sort of your, you know, negative stuff, but like just sort mm-hmm. of yeah, like, oh, you know, tell me more about that. Oh, and maybe I'll learn something and get a, a deeper, because deep, that's what, what we sort of talk about when we talk about, you know, diversity and, and being inclusive. It's just recognizing that difference and not so much like, oh, you know, you know, what is that? You know, what yeah. are you doing? It's just yeah. a, it's a subtle difference, but I, I think that's something that, you know, I've sort of arrived at through this process as well. We want individuals to express in themselves because they bring something to the table unique that they only they sort of can bring. Right. And I think we become a better community, a better world when we just sort of, you know, recognize each individual's gifts and talents and however they choose to express them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, you know, when I'm speaking of here is in, in their best light, not in a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that's sort of detrimental or negative. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think that's an important sort of aspect that you, you you highlight. Yeah, you gave a really great example of going on a trip, and you know people <laughs> taking you know photos, and you know people taking beautiful like touristy photos, and then someone taking a picture of like trash. <laughs> yeah. And no, I, you know yeah, you're sharing photos, and you're like maybe I won't share my trash photos because you know everyone else took touristy photos but yet the way that you saw that space in that experience brings an important element to the conversation we need to have dialogue to kind of situate why that person took a lot of pictures of trash in that particular space at that particular time um Mm -hmm. gets to that and 
sends the message that that is important, it's welcome, and it's necessary um, versus just shutting someone down in their trash pictures. <laughs> and it, it really, like, yeah. put some things into perspective for me. You know, as a shooter, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, that's kind of depressing. I don't know if I want to uh-huh. see that. But yet right. my perspe- perspective, you know, is just as important as anyone else's. Um, so I, um, I think that that's where we'll end it. Um, as I just got told, it's 90 seconds left. (laughs) Um, but I want to thank you, Charles, for a a really engaging conversation. Um, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing in Evansville. Um, I really, you know, look forward to seeing more, um, of this thoughtful work from you in the future. And if you're, you know, you're always welcome to come back and talk shop with me anytime. Um, So I want to thank everyone for um, joining me today. I will be on next Saturday at 12 noon. Um, Join us at Voices for Racial Healing. Thank you and have a great weekend.